Hello and welcome to Please Watch This, where two film-loving mates with gaps in their viewing history recommend films to each other so they can once and for all answer the question, who has better taste? As always, I'm Sam Blakely, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Dempsey. Hugh, how are you? Hello. I'm not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Good, yeah, I heard rumours of a birthday this week, Hugh, for the show. Yeah. Yep, it was uh, my birthday back on Tuesday. I'm now 33, 33. years old. Oh, um, imagine what you could achieve in 33 I years. I don't know what that means. Well, you know, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world <laughs> by the time he was 32. What's that great Sid Briscoe so. commentary for the darts? Something like, Alexander the Great uh, cried tears of salt because uh, he, there were no, no more worlds to conquer. He was 32. Uh, I can't yeah. remember which darts player he's on about. Uh, Eric Bristow probably. Eric Bristow that's oh yeah what's the Eric Bristow is only 25 or something like that <laughs> who's the commentator I'm thinking of I've, I've completely mangled names there but anyway the great darts commentator Eric great Bristow's line only 25 yeah yeah yep. so we had a nice you were on a zoom call and I won the quiz just, just it was, to remind it was you, very that's, 2020 that's, that's two quizzes I've now beaten you in Sam again technicalities quizzes. you knew more about Star Wars otherwise I would have you mean I knew it. the you mean I knew the answers to the questions it's broken it was saying. a broken quiz and uh, I mean I think Monty should it. never be allowed to quiz again I, I think Monty should never be allowed to make quiz questions again too <laughs> actually irrespective petty grievances aside though we are joined for a fifth time fourth time by Dakota Arsenault of our favourite podcast ContraZoom pod. How is it going, Dakota? I'm pretty sure this is only the third time. Oh, hang uh, on a second. I thought it was the... <laughs> Before yes, Sunrise. In Life Aquatic. Yeah. Life, Life Aquatic. Well, I suppose nice. we joined you on your podcast, so <laughs> I'll count it as a, our fourth podcast recording together. Like, I was listening to uh, your recent episode that you had uh, on with your brother, Sam, and, and I think that was his <laughs> fifth or whatever episode, and he was talking about getting uh, the Five Timers Club jacket, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm working my way up for that. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Why not? It's a, it's a really lofty ambition, to Dakota, but I think you're up for the job. <laughs> Two more times. I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> we believe in you. Yeah, <laughs> so, Dakota, how have you been in the uh, the interim since we last spoke Oh, not bad. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you guys were actually just on my show, albeit we didn't mm-hmm. talk live. You you sent in some some voicemail clips of your favorite movies of 2020, and so I included that. Uh, Hugh had a very unique pick in Tenet, and, and Sam, yours was um, Soul, which matched up to one of Royce's picks, so so it worked Second out as a nice little year, introduction for that. I believe it was, yeah. He, he really loved that one. I did too. It was, it was an honorable mention for me. Tenet, not That's so right. much. That's right. And it was an odd year because I started the year going to the cinema a lot and then haven't seen so many of the great films that I'm I'm told are great anyway uh, from 2020. But uh, let's see. Let's see if that can't change this year. Yes. Yeah. Who, who knows when we'll be allowed back into the theatre. But yeah, I definitely miss it too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, luckily my, my cinema... Um, you know, loyalty, unlimited kind of card. They haven't been charging me this year, <laughs> which is quite good of them. Um, That's nice of them. I'm, I'm looking forward to making the most of that membership once again. Yeah. Uh, now, Dakota joins us for um, a, another Paul Thomas Anderson thing, uh, film. I think the third of his that we've covered after Punch, after um, uh, Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood. And this is 2012's The Master, which, um, again, to give Contra Zoom Pod another plug, was one of, I think, was that the number one of the 2010s? Or it was 
It was certainly somebody's it, number one up there. It was my number one. That's it just correct, barely yeah. made the cut because no one else apparently have seen has seen that movie, which made oh, me right. very angry. So it <laughs> so it came in near the bottom of the list. Uh, but yes, I voted it number one. That's right. And I remember listening to that episode and thinking, okay, we've been waiting for a long time to finally watch The Master. It's been on Hugh's watch list since the start of the podcast. And yeah. after his... I think you've... You recommended it to me, I think, about 2013 or 2014, probably. as I said last week. Yeah. yeah, probably. And it's been on it's been on the list for a long time, and I've been so reluctant to watch it because of fairly lukewarm <laughs> reviews of similar enough films, things like Place Beyond the Pines and There Will Be Blood. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes today. But listener, if you if you new if you're not new to if you're new to the show. The format is that Hugh hasn't seen the film, and, and we have. And uh, after the first break, we'll find out Hugh's views. But before then, we're going to say why we love it so much, basically, and we'll try and predict Hugh's views. So, quick synopsis then. The Master, it's... I mean, would you say... It's, it's, it's not so much a satire or anything. It's more like kind of inspired by Scientology. I don't know what the word would be, Dakota. It's, it's a sort of take on a Scientology thing. Yeah, dramatic retelling that isn't really about it, but is. Yeah, I think that's a nice legally binding <laughs> way for, you know, it's, they are quite litigious, <laughs> I've heard. Um, yeah, so Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Lancaster Dodd. He's a kind of charismatic head of the cause, uh, very much a uh, L. Ron Hubbard figure, and Joaquin Phoenix plays a sort of ne'er-do-well drifter after the war after the second world war really with no ambitions and it's about him his i suppose indoctrination or seduction by that i mean cult is a word that you might use or certainly that cause that group and uh, and the way that it goes from there it being a paul thomas anderson film it's not a tight narrative 90 minute thing with a begin beginning middle and end it's a little bit more character portraits and uh, and beautiful cinematography. So Dakota, I'll uh, I'll start with you. What is it that you love about the master? You know this this movie is a little bit tough to really describe. Like you were talking about trying to explain the plot because the plot's pretty thin as far as like a beginning, middle, and end. You know we we meet uh, Freddie Quell, the the walking Phoenix character, and he's clearly a guy who's got some some real trauma and some real issues, both from. Uh, the World War II, I believe it is, that he fought in, but also just sounds like, in general, he's kind of a guy who's had a pretty messed up life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it just sort of him following, falling under the spell of the cause and, and Lancaster Dodd, and that's basically sort of the plot of, like, the two men sort of basically circling the drain of life of each other, and <laughs> they, they can't live without each other, and they can't live with each other, and, and that's sort of it. So in that sense, let's, that's about the gist of the plot but what i really like about it is i would almost compare it sort of similarly to a movie like the social network where on the surface the social network is a movie about facebook except for it's not really about facebook sure it tells that story but it's really more about male friendship and and sort of how that all plays out and the master is very similar you know it's sort of a telling of scientology and the creation of it but also it's not really at all and it pretty much very quickly just sort of gets that out of the way and just sort of almost uses it as a bit of a MacGuffin plot uh, and just sort of moves on to be about how these two men, you know, basically um, toxic masculinity, different versions of it, though. Uh, you have, you know, the, the much more uh, feral incarnation in Freddie Quell, and then you have the much more sophisticated uh, in in thinking side of this sort of toxic toxic masculinity in the in the Lancaster character 
But I think at the end of the day, what I most like about this movie is this probably has, bar none, some of the greatest acting performances ever, including probably the two greatest uh, lead and supporting male actor performances by by Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, I, I would literally put this up against, you know, any Marlon Brando role, any, I'm, I'm blanking on like Lawrence Olivier, like any sort of performance by by any of the greatest actors you can ever come up with i would put this on that same mount rushmore basically i completely agree i went into the cinema to see this this film and it is a film to watch in the cinema really um i went in not really having seen many philip seymour hoffman films and came out deciding that he's my favorite actor <laughs> you he know has it was really just such song. a magneticism to us yeah he really does and it was so disappointing to then start watching his back catalog because he's still wonderful in everything but he rarely plays this kind of character and it's what he's made for it seemed from this film you know he's he's wonderful in capote and he, he does kind of hold court in capote um but in a different kind of way he's obviously he plays a lot of like weird scuzzball weirdos in a lot of films whether that's Punch Drunk Love or you know he's not this character he's not Lancaster Dodd at all in Boogie Nights but he's fantastic in that and I was kind of disappointed that and obviously he died not long not too long after this was released so I was kind of disappointed that I didn't get to see this Philip Seymour Hoffman in that many films is he like this has either of you seen the film Doubt yes I have is he like a bit like this in Doubt this kind of like sort of authority figure so to speak um, not really. He he's a lot softer in that movie because the whole point of of his character in doubt is you really are doubting whether or not this seemingly nice priest could have committed the heinous act that he's being accused of. So it's it's a lot softer of a character because you're supposed to like him a bit more. And whereas yeah. it's the Amy Adams character in that movie, uh, who's also in in the Master where she is the only one who really sort of sees through his his facade of maybe he he isn't such a great guy whereas you know Lancaster Dodd he's he just has this i said already this magneticism where everyone is drawn to him you you can easily see where like if it's if it's a party or whatever everyone is going to immediately circle around him and listen to what he has to say and even though like i i wouldn't call Philip Seymour Hoffman a traditionally a traditionally attractive man he just oozes sort of sexual energy to this character as well even though you know he's kind of sunburned he's a little sweaty (laughs) at times he's not always completely put together but he still has that sort of energy where you're like oh yeah i can i can see why people would be deeply attracted to this man in this character this guy fucks as people often say (laughs) absolutely (laughs) this guy fucks that that was an interesting thing uh, comparison somebody made on twitter recently which was kind of like you know these leading men especially in marvel kind of films they are traditionally much more handsome than a lot from like the 70s or 80s but those guys were a lot sexier like jack nicholson was always handsome but he was sexy because he's Mm -hmm. he's hairy whereas like chris hemsworth who is objectively one of the most good-looking men on the planet I sort of he's not he's not a sexual being if that makes sense. Whereas, like you say, Philip Hoffman by no means a, like a good-looking man conventionally, but 
Yeah, he he's a fucking warthog. Um, <laughs> would you, would you describe Chris Hemsworth as a muscled-up statue to give it the old wrestling term? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like if you found out he was like an an action man, you'd be like, oh, fair enough. And like you know, <laughs> you've been you've really you've really sold out to Disney, but I respect it. You know what I um, Yeah, and it, it is that fun, and and that's the great thing. I think it's the source of most of the criticism of the film. Uh, maybe a reason why maybe a reason why Hugh wouldn't like it, but it's also in some ways one of its great strengths that it's not plot driven and that it is um, it is so subtle some of the motivations for things let's say when when Freddy gets on the motorbike and he's just he just drives for longer than they think that's the sort of thing where you're like okay if I had to explain to myself never mind somebody else why that why he did that the meaning of it why it made me feel something I couldn't do it um, and I don't remember the filmmaker it might have been David Lynch or somebody and, and it he was asked to describe the meaning of a film and he said well you know i can't i can't describe the meaning of this film in words in the same way that i can't describe it in a painting or you know you can't describe a painting in words you wouldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't do the film is a film because that's the medium by which i intend to send that message i should have otherwise i'd make a pamphlet or a leaflet or you know a speech <laughs> <laughs> you know that it just doesn't translate in that way yeah this movie mm. very much is is not what you think it's more what you feel Exactly, yeah, and and it doesn't, and and some decisions you a character can make, you you might think I don't, I wouldn't make that, but for some reason I'm, I'm, yeah, in the same way, a lot of the ways that that um, Lancaster kind of breaks Freddie down, you do think I wouldn't have sat down with a pen and paper and logically thought, okay, so this is what I need to do next. I need to get him to touch that wall and then the window and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But for some reason, it does something to Freddie that that works in the same way that those Scientology auditing things work mm-hmm. yeah and, and and really it's it's a type of movie that it's definitely going to be a lot of off putting to a bunch of different people like I, I watched this with with my wife stephanie and and she did not care for it at all she also didn't care for phantom thread and didn't really care for there will be blood so i've, I've basically learned don't watch paul thomas anderson <laughs> movies with her anymore <laughs> have you watched boogie nights with her yet no, uh, I don't think she'll like sure. that one. Even even that that yeah. one, I'm a little lower in my my PTA rankings than than probably some other people. <laughs> uh, the master is closer to having like a an a hundred minute tight drama about it if you just cut out some stuff and made it shorter. And, exactly. You know. Yeah. And I feel that way about Magnolia as well. If we're if we're going to mm. kind of talk more about PTA, whereas I love the idea of Magnolia, but it's about an hour and a half too long. And this is a movie <laughs> that uh, even at two and a half hours would still be too long. But it, mm. I think it like clocks in at over three hours. Crikey, yeah, it's been. I've seen it once years ago, and I, I know it's one of Hugh's films. It's, you've not seen it, have you, Hugh? Magnolia. No, I've not seen Magnolia. Punch Drunk Love, and now um, at Inherent Vice are the right. three. Yeah, PTA and I, I still haven't seen Phantom Threads or Inherent Vice. It's it's a strange thing that he's he's basically my favourite director and I still haven't seen three of his films, uh, including Hard Eight. Um, but, it's, I mean, and we'll get into, I suppose, the maybe the, the Scientology stuff and whatnot in, in uh, Hugh's views as well. But I think one more thing, more, one more thing on the both the performance and the, I suppose, the writing or the, the filmmaking is that for me, I've always been really into sceptics and people who, uh, you know, 
well, skeptics, you know, like John, the John Moore character in this. Uh, so if you haven't seen it for a while, listener, it's the guy who's at the dinner party who um, Lancaster calls a pig fuck, <laughs> you know, because he's, <laughs> he's been skeptical about the cause. And I, in any other circumstance, would be right on his side. But for some reason, I'm sort of seduced by Lancaster Dodd's way of looking at it, you know. And uh, have you? I don't know if you've seen A Leap of Faith. Uh, no, I have not. So that also stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, actually, in a very early role, a bit almost a cameo appearance. Steve Martin plays a um, charlatan uh, medium-type psychic-type character, kind of Peter Popoff-type character. And again, I hate Peter Popoff and, and mediums. I think I think being a medium should be a crime, because it's awful and evil. And yet in that film, I, I love the Steve Martin character, and I don't like it when people are trying to shut him down. Uh, you know, so it's a weird thing that I root for the awful guy in this because he's so magnetic. Especially since you've got like the Amy Adams character who plays Philip Seymour Hoffman's wife, who is so much of a true believer, probably more so than, than just about everyone else in the movie. She really yeah. does believe in, in what her husband is doing. You know, there, there's a few other characters throughout the film where, you know, some, some cracks in the facade really start to happen. And especially later on in the film where Lancaster Dodd, really probably doesn't believe as much as what he's really saying once yeah. it's kind of revealed that he's basically just making stuff up on the spot like yeah. early on you know his son doesn't really care that's going on and then um uh i don't remember the actor's name um jesse Plemons. who's one what of great his casting main, by the way <laughs> to, yeah, look, one to, of his to look like philip hoffman's con- son <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah no kidding crazy, he, he really it? does look like a mix between hoffman and adams too, yeah. which i don't know <laughs> if it's supposed to be like there i was mean something, he I mean, There's... the famous one with Jesse Plemons is he looks like a fat Matt Damon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also the the actor who shows up a few times as one of his closest confidants and, and towards the end after his second book comes out. And, uh, and Freddie oh, was like, Dern. so what do you think of the book? And he's like, uh, you know, it's not that good. And then he like, <laughs> Fred takes <laughs> him out Freddy back beats and, him. <laughs> and beats him up. But like, yeah, yeah there, there are, there are people that truly doubt him except for his wife who, you know, is the one person who is always sort of championing him and you want to like believe her because she's so convincing at that too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it is an odd thing to make that par- parallel mediumship as well. Those who are the most successful at it tend to be the people who believe it at least because they mm-hmm. know where the cracks are and what the tricks are. If somebody's pretty bad at it, they're probably quite sincere. <laughs> you know, people have just told them they're quite intuitive and definitely Lancaster. And again, it's it's a weird thing. Like you say, he holds court at these parties and he's always a centre of attention and he, and he is jovial and everybody loves him. But there's also always an underlying threat that you're going to be forgotten and you know kicked out of the family it's like the the phelps family you know in, in america the um yeah. the most hated family in america the louis theory documentary mm-hmm. it's a strange uh fanatical love uh cult environment where you love each other but it's only because you know that if you were anything but orthodox you'd be kicked out of the family and forgotten about and nobody could talk about you i think one of the last things i, I kind of want to mention about that i like about this is it is shocking just how period appropriate basically every background performer looks in this movie especially at the <laughs> beginning when, when freddie's working as the department store photographer you like if you would have told me those were you know still photos from you know a 1952 issue of life magazine i would believe it i do not know how he was able to cast those kids and everyone else to look and dress 
like it just blows my mind that like there's just something about people today don't look like they look like in the 50s like we look at our grandparents or the people of that generation and just people don't look like that anymore even though you (laughs) know you could see familial resemblance of like oh yeah I look like my grandfather but I don't look like him exactly and there's just something about people's faces and, and their body structures or something I don't know what it is and for some reason PTA was able to cast people that just fit in so seamlessly. I think, I think they call it like nutritional deficiency. <laughs> I mean, obviously the people were a lot thinner back then, weren't they? Um, than they it are is today. weird though, yeah, like Carol Vorderman looks, <laughs> looks older myself. when she first appeared on Countdown than when she does now, you know, it's, like, it's a weird sort of phenomenon. <laughs> Sorry, um, that was, there's a show over here that's been running for like 40 years, it's um, like a daytime quiz show. Um, called Countdown. And there was a, Called Countdown, yeah, and it, the the format basically has, it's like you get given a load and you get given a load of um, letters, and you have to make like a, is it like a word? You have to make a word out of it, but then there's also a number section, and in the number section, well, basically they put the the letters out on a board, and the woman who did that, she basically just didn't age for about twenty five years, did she? She sort of de aged <laughs> because about- she had the nineteen eighties. She yeah. looked like, yeah, she looked 40 then, but she looked 20, 10 years later. It's an odd phenomenon. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Dakota, can you think of reasons why Hugh might not like this film? Because I've got a couple. Um, the lack of narrative structure is probably going to be a, a big one. Also, you know, despite me praising the, the magneticism of the characters, almost no one in this movie is actually likable. Um, <laughs> they all do some pretty despicable things, especially once you start thinking a little more deeper than the surface level with with the guy that's accusing them of saying that they're peddling you know Mm. uh false medical advice and people are dying from leukemia and he's like no it cures some types of leukemia and things like that and and when you really think about you know what they're actually doing in the cause and the processing stuff and how it relates to scientology none of these people are good and if you are looking for maybe some sort of redeemable characters and this movie doesn't have that i could see why that could maybe be a bit of a, a gridlock for for someone to enjoy it i think that's fair yeah it's it's a funny line between likable and charismatic isn't it you know because you do root for them but you're right that objectively are that they're not being good people i think mm-hmm. um what's interesting is when i first loved this film i absolutely loved it the second time i watched it absolutely loved it for some reason when i watched it yesterday i just really liked it and i think it might be that narrative structure that it it sort of just it it kind of fell apart like their relationship did and i felt mm-hmm. on, on watching it last night that i wanted a little bit more to that it felt like it, it really had me in the palm of its hand and it just started to lose me a little bit um and i think i think it, like i said before this was the film that i was least looking forward to getting Hugh's response to after watching last night i almost feel more prepared for a lukewarm review from hugh than i did before yeah i don't know if that if that rings true I, I could see Hugh maybe appreciating the technical aspects of it and being able to be like, yes, these are objectively great performances, but still not being fully on board with it. Yes, and I, and I think that's probably the case. So Hugh, if I was to predict, I'd say you're in the sort of 7 out of 10 region on this, but I'm prepared to be pleasantly surprised. But listener, well, we'll that is, we? we will. That is us in anticipation. Join us after the break to get Hugh's views. Feeling unknown and you're all alone Blessed by the terror Lift up the 
welcome back. We're now ready for Hugh's views. It's 18 months in the waiting, Hugh. What <laughs> did you like about The Master? So this film is... I'm going to kind of echo a bit what Dakota said. The performances in this film from, like, I think the three main characters in this film are incredible acting. Mm. Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman absolutely knocks it out of the park. You know, he's, he shows how you can sort of... You've got to have that, like you said. He's not. He's not a conventionally attractive man, is he? He, like you said, he's a bit. He's overweight. He's a bit sweaty sometimes. He's a bit. He gives me hope. But he has just this magnetic personality. But it always has this faint veil of sort of edginess to it, almost. Even though he's very civilized at times, that veil slips away from time to time, and it's that that intrigue that kind of keeps you watching this film because the, the the thing that surprised me the most about this film, I kind of knew from what you had said before, Sam, that there wasn't too much of a narrative in this. So I wasn't that surprised when probably it's probably, it's, it is, it's, you know, it is its biggest flaw of the film is the narrative is a bit meandering and it's, it's essentially man leaves army, man, can't hold down job because of say PTSD man drifts around man finds cult man leaves cult and is essentially practically the same person but slightly isn't that's that's the plot yeah it it wouldn't do as a Christmas card story would it Um, and I think that's why it's a two and a half hour film (laughs) you know you can write it down on the back of a stamp but that's but but then sometimes it doesn't matter what the plot of a film like this it's like you said it's a bit of a character study it's a bit of um I think Paul Thomas Anderson, one of the things he does very well from the films I've seen and now watching this, is he kind of, he likes to look at how men behave. He's, 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 and he's very drawn to like what sort of these relationships men build up with people and kind of the way that this film, it's about, you know, the film's literally called The Master. It's about somebody who has a position of authority over somebody who wants to be you know, submissive to that authority. You know, I think um, the basically the way I saw it framed was that this film, that Joaquin Phoenix's character, it, Freddy, is he's he's always like sub- submissive to somebody, like he's always under the spell of somebody else, and um, you know, in this case, it it's like a sort of surrogate father sort of relationship, but it's almost more than that because it's essentially a cult <laughs> that he's joined. You know, with the cause and trillions of years and all this stuff but yeah um yeah i mean yeah like i said philip seymour hoffman doesn't admit i can understand why you came out of this film going he's my favorite actor because he's got like that kind of brando quality of that just magnetism you know he said i saw an i watched an interview on youtube with him about this and he said oh you know i was trying to do a bit of brando uh, sorry i was trying to do a bit of orson wells as well and um Mm. we watched you know after we watched citizen kane you can see that kind of Sort of Orson Welles or some Wells kind of charisma in him. You know, there is that character is very magnetic to the people around him. But 
you know, it was nice to see as well. Whacking Phoenix is actually, you know, weighs something in this film after watching Joker. <laughs> you know, but there are there are real uh, links between this and his Joker performance. I, and I didn't realize that until rewatching that. I was like, yeah. wow, this seems a lot like the Joker performance. This is like an audition <laughs> for the Joker. Could yeah. you imagine if like Paul Thomas Anderson had made that film instead of Todd Phillips? Yeah, it would have been this film. Been. I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. when Amy Adams says at the end where he goes, "Oh, you you don't look well," and it's like he looks great. <laughs> It, this is the he best he looked. <laughs> what are you saying? He's quite thin and uh, yeah, he weirdly could look worse. <laughs> On the subject but, of the uh, the Orwell charisma, something I saw after we did the the uh, Mank uh, Citizen Kane episode with with yeah. Consume, um, have either of you seen Orson Welles interviewing Andy Kaufman? No, no, I, I imagine that's hilarious. It was amazing because obviously, weird. presumably you both know about Andy Kaufman and he's just this yeah. weird, like, is his he, life is Is he interviewing hour. him, sorry Sam, is he interviewing him as Andy Kaufman or is he interviewing him as that comedian that he used to play? As, well, he would go on to, he, I think he had a neck brace on, so he was like in the mode to be in his character. But right. Orson Welles was just so like charismatic and knocked him off guard that he almost was sincere and it was like, you know, I don't know much about Andy Kaufman. I've seen Man in the Moon and I've seen The Odd Thing. But it was yeah. the first time I'd seen him, like, a child, like, looking at, a, you know, a teacher. And, and Freddie Quell's got that about him. It's, to talk to Freddie Quell, you know, to talk to those people, you get the sense that they're pure, uh, individual, id-like people who can't be controlled. But like you said, Hugh, you know, somebody who's actually kind of had a master his whole life and, and, and kind of been a tear away from that is somebody who wouldn't have done well in school. And obviously being a teacher, I've sort of dealt with students who are like that, with children who are like that. And actually what they're crying out for is a, a paternal figure, you know, is a, certainly not control, but they want somebody to tell them what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I, it, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, that's what he's he's looking for. He's almost like a character looking for purpose, but because he's so, you know, this is a great example of, um, you know, the don't uh, show, don't tell. So yeah. it shows you a bit of his life before he meets um, Lancaster Dodd, but he doesn't, he doesn't show everything. You know, it could show like him, you know, it could show him being on the boat at night and it, you know, in combat or something like that. And, you know, there's clearly something has got to him maybe before he joined the Navy, but, you know, something snapped whilst he was in the Navy, you know what I mean? Maybe it was... Um, yeah, it's odd that you don't see any of his uh, any of his combat. Yeah, maybe it was, like, loneliness or something, or the lack of female, you, you know, attention, you know, because he's clearly a character who craves that kind of attention. Um, <laughs> he's a horny bugger, isn't he? Jesus. He is, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, when he's taking the Rorschach test, he's... You know, he's saying it looks like a vagina or a, a something. But I don't think that's his exact word. He's like, oh, that yeah, looks like a, a dick. cock going into a vagina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just think Amy Adams is brilliant in this. I just so I, I what, yeah. Again, what surprised me about this film is I kind of thought the beats would go obviously kind of like lost soul, a bit of a wanderer. I didn't know what kind of character he'd be because I hadn't seen the film. But you know, joins joins in a cult. And then, you know, the cracks of the facade of the cult kind of break down and the kind of characters that would kind of, he would kind of worm his way into would be like, like you know, Lancaster Dodd's wife, you know, Amy Adams' character, um, Peggy. I thought she would be the one that would be like, oh, help me, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But no, she's as, like, she's more zealous, you know, than Lancaster Dodd almost. Um, 
when there's that scene where they're talking about they should kick him out of the of the cause and she's you know the the kids have their say so to speak and they're, not, they're not kids but you know the younger people have their say and then she's like oh yeah I agree with them basically he's no good for us he's beyond help and he's like oh I'll take it under consideration <laughs> and just ignores them basically but, but yeah. again he's that sort of like that you know that those teachers who were like uh, oh I stick up for you in the staff room you know uh, that sort of thing of it, it's us who have failed him you know, and yeah. uh, you see that a lot in, in uh, pastoral care. You know, and, and it's interesting because what she's almost the master of him in that in that regards because she basically, when he's brushing his teeth, goes up to him. She uses mm. sex as her <laughs> power over him, doesn't she? She, like, mm. wanks him off and goes, you know, gonna, you know you're know, you going to stop boozing, aren't you? And he's like, yes. For a man <laughs> in his 40s who's boozing, like, he... He's pretty fast. <laughs> That's a really short scene. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I thought she was great in it because she's she doesn't get any big like sort of emotional like oh my god how could you do this or whatever but she's just quiet, solemn and sort of authoritative in the whole piece and she's a nice balance because like you said you see that mask slip from both Freddie and. Lancaster throughout the film but she, mm. she never she never never slips um, and yeah I suppose we've got to mention it haven't we we need to open this can of worms come at me Scientology um, but yeah it's obviously I think this is again this is what Paul Thomas Anderson's very good at is he does films where he doesn't do biopics he uses real life people as inspiration for his films so he can explore the themes of what these people kind of went through, you know, like with, um, for instance, you know, there will be blood that's based on some oil baron. Famously, uh, Boogie Nights is based around um, John Holmes, so it's sort of um, the Hollywood was it the Hollywood Murders or the Hollywood Land Murders or something they call it. Um, so yeah, so this is a great example where he's taken a real life person who started his own cult and religion and basically went well this is what it's like if you know freddie's kind of like the audience point of view into that cult because you get that montage where he's like making him do things you know he's walking back and forth in the living room touching the wall touching the window and he's like oh you can stop now you know end application or whatever i think he says and he's like yeah he's like no you're joking because he just doesn't believe it because he's so controlled now he's so you know the dragon's got the the uh the the noose on him or the collar or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and it's interesting I think that because... Is good, that is a good way of putting it because then you don't worry about the historical inaccuracies or, well, you know, really L. Ron Hubbard wasn't there and this and that. It is just, why would somebody join a cult? Well, here's somebody who is primed to join a cult and here's a perfect cult leader to get him into the cult. As yeah. you probably know, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and his family kind of escaped a cult in the yeah. 70s. Yeah. And his his name Phoenix is because it's New Beginnings, which is exactly why uh, yeah. is it the second book has that, you know. So it's, yeah, it, it has lots of those, like you say, that thematic analysis and interpretation rather than what happened in this person's actual life. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can explore it in your own way, can't you? I think is the way you look at that sort of stuff. Is you can put your own spin on it and how you how you interpret it, which I like. I like that's what I like about Paul Thomas Anderson. Like I said, I've come to realise that he's he's very much the director who looks at the lives of men in different sort of states of. Um, 
don't know, what could you say? Different sort of states of like positions in life. You know, you've got like somebody like um, Mark Wahlberg's character in Boogie Nights. He's very, you know, he's quite dumb, but he has this unique talent, <laughs> one might say. Um, <laughs> Young, dumb and full of cum. Yeah, you've got, say, like um, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, who's clearly quite an intelligent, but, you know, ruthless, amoral character. Um You've got sort of the flawed creative genius in uh, Phantom Thread and the weird relationship he has with his partner in that. Um, and then you've got like this film again. It's somebody who who's looking upon somebody who, to him... I don't know, what do you guys think? Do you think that Freddie wants to be like um, Lancaster? Or do you think he's just looking for someone to sort of accept him? You know, there's that scene in the jail where he's like, nobody likes you except me, you know, and he's shouting at him when they're both telling each other to fuck off. <laughs> and he's, so yeah, like Freddie's sort of this sort of drifter, isn't he? He's somebody who sails through life to extend the Navy metaphor. What do you guys think? Um, I think he, he very strictly just is looking for approval. I don't think Freddie has any sort of inclination to lead, to create, to have other people follow him. He doesn't seem that way. I think he's strictly looking for for approval and validation. You know, there's the early time where he goes and and beats up the the dissenter uh, at his apartment in the middle of the night. (laughs) And, you know, he he beats up uh, the confidant uh, outside the book launch and that sort of thing, where he's doing that strictly because he thinks Lancaster would approve of that, even though Lancaster very clearly doesn't. Uh, you know, I, I read a, an interesting review on Letterboxd where basically just saying how, how Freddie is a dog and he just kind of, <laughs> you know, goes for this immediate gratification and if you piss a dog off, he's going to bite you in the hand or sort of thing. And, and that's sort of what, what Freddie is, but he still needs a master. No, that is a, a good... really wonderful, that is yeah. a wonderful analogy that uh, I, yeah. I think... Mm-hmm. I hate my, I hate the fact that I didn't see that before because yeah he's right? literally the master and <laughs> yes. Freddy's this scoundrel he calls him yeah. a scoundrel yeah. you know and that's kind of he calls him a few times don't don't be an animal don't be an animal <laughs> very clearly Freddy is an animal he calls him a boy a lot doesn't he as well to kind of yeah but that's a great you know that's a good that's a, a that's a spot on analogy because given the option for to run away. The, the dog will run away, and in this case, he's chasing he does, that stick on the He literally like. runs away, doesn't he? <laughs> um, as soon as he can. Oh, God. It's, yeah. My world is yeah. unraveling thinking about how perfect this analogy <laughs> is and how that must have been baked into it because that is so good. Yeah. Because he's just, he's just, he's nice just looking to hump anything, isn't he? He'll, he's just humping, humping any leg, whether it's made out of he sand. He will literally hump goddamn. sand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or straight into the sea, <laughs> just as people are walking by. Good yeah. God. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think it's um, it's also interesting to to see like how did people deal with like PTSD and the wider mental health issues, you know, in the past sort of. Obviously, they I just call it nervous issues, don't they? You know, yeah. like, and it's quite a good speech. But you're right. It, it, this, yeah, this would be a PTSD handbook. Yeah. Anyway, I've I've come to the conclusion, Dakota, that Sam secretly either wants to be a cult leader or join a cult because so far he's recommended this film and he's also recommended uh, Midsommar. And he said when we did the Midsommar <laughs> review that um, there's something very like 
there'd be something very nice to be part of a community like that where everyone's kind of on the same page so you know I'm just saying if you know in 10 years from now Sam wanders off into some strange wilderness somewhere to live on an island with like-minded people I'd be worried so if, Jonas, if he offers us some Kool-Aid <laughs> if he offers us some Kool-Aid do not drink it <laughs> that's probably yeah, good advice definitely. actually generally don't drink the Kool-Aid yeah that is Gosh. That's true. Well, I mean, um, that's in terms of their relationship. Is it? A, I've seen it described as homoerotic, and people throw that word around. Is it a homoerotic relationship? No, I don't think so. I think there's, it's it's definitely platonic, but it's not it's not a balanced relationship. It's asymmetrical. It's how I would describe it. It's a um, I I must admit, I did expect there to be more of a, you know, when a lot of people said oh, this is a film about like Scientology and cults and all this kind of stuff. I must admit, I thought there'd be more cracks in the cult itself and there'd be more reasons for you to go, well, that's something you don't want to be part of. But <laughs> if anything, I watched it and thought, well, either he's lying to everyone around him or Lon- Lancaster Dog sincerely thinks he's helping Freddie and, you know, he's sad that he knows he's going to leave and he's sad about it and that's why he says oh in the next life he'll be my, my enemy and I'll kill you or whatever <laughs> so yeah I think there's I would have you know if it was a more if it was looking at cults in a certain way you would say oh well the cult leader would be sort of you know all smiles and nice nice to his face but then behind his back trying to manipulate him to do something but he's just he feels like there's a genuineness there maybe I missed some sort of cues where he is like the arch manipulator or whatever but uh, yeah yeah i mean dakota did you did you have doubts that lancaster was being genuine with with freddie or did you genuinely believe all the things he said you know like the the love he has for him and this kindred spirit or is he just making getting another follower you know i like to sort of circle back just your point a little bit about you know is the relationship homoerotic or something like that or platonic I, I think it's it's definitely more of a of a father son sort of relationship where, mm. where Lancaster is you know viewed as a father figure to many people but specifically to the Freddie character and I I do believe his his affection is real is is almost like the the son he doesn't have so you know he he looks at he's got uh, the Jesse Plemons character which is his son and he clearly keeps him involved and stuff like that but doesn't care that you know he'll sit outside when he's giving his lessons like he doesn't need to know that his son doesn't believe it but the fact that he is he doesn't even want to be present whereas his wife is you know front row center mm-hmm. and then his daughter marries uh Rami Malik I can't remember his character's name either Clark. off the top of my head Yes, Clark. And and he, you know, sort of seems like a true believer, but he almost seems a little too eager where it's like, <laughs> all right, you need to you need to dial this down a little bit, kid. Um, <laughs> and like, it almost seems weird at one point where he calls him dad, yeah. which I know that's obviously like very much a thing, but like, I don't call my father-in-law dad, but Oof. I know that's a previous generation sort of thing, but it just sort of reeked of desperation where he's just like, dad. You almost, <laughs> in some ways, his orth- orthodoxy and clean cut thing makes me doubt his passion even more i believe that freddie's more committed to the cause than he is because of that it feels yeah. like well he's my father-in-law and i'm trying to impress him uh you know in that sort of sense that it's it's faker in the same way i said about mediums you know the faker they are the more convincing they are 
Um, yeah. Like that. Is there anyone here who knows somebody whose name begins with an A? <laughs> 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 well, I but yeah, I, I would say I would say Clark is you know more of the true believer in the style of uh, the Amy Adams character is, but whereas the difference being Amy Adams can tell what the actual power and end game is, whereas Clark just sort of is kind of along for the ride. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it's just very interesting where it's just a bit of a different dichotomy of two sides of a similar character. But yeah, I believe, I believe Lancaster's affection for Freddie is genuine, but in the same way of, a of a father looking at his son being like, why can't you just behave? Why did you have to act out? Why did you have to get into a fight at school? I, I obviously don't respect <laughs> him for being in fights and things like that. So it's, it's a very sort of tricky relationship where he wants to give him his love, but at the same time he questions his own child's motivations. I think that's right. a good way of putting it. I think it's Absolutely. also an unreliable narrator to a point, if that makes sense. Yes. Because you're only yeah. seeing... Freddie's interactions with him you're not seeing mm. Lancaster Dodd very I think there's like is there just one scene I think where it's Lancaster Dodd on his own or without without Freddie in it is it one two scenes maybe? yeah there's, there's the, the one with the, the the wank scene yeah, yeah. yeah I think that might be the only one <laughs> well the wank scene and where they're trying to get rid of him at the dinner table and I think yes um, right yes yeah it is fascinating like that. a more conventional film would have this as almost like a thriller of you know, can yeah. we trust him? Can we not trust him? And he's, sometimes he shows this face, sometimes it's that, and it's Freddie trying to get away. And and it's I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson's interested in that sort of film. No, he's interested in he's interested in. I mean, he's interested primarily, it seems, in family dynamics, doesn't he? Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, that's yeah. what like Boogie Nights was about, and that's what this is about. It's a it becomes a surrogate family for. for it, Freddy, it's the sort basically. of thing where you go, oh wow! As much as I do, I'm not a tabloid journalist. I would like to know about his his relationship with his father, and I'd you know I'd be interested to like get the scoop on that, you know, and the inside scoop on on it. Yeah. Um, would you like to know what maybe I didn't like about this film? Sure. Well, no. Yeah, is it? Um, <laughs> we'll end. You know, there. I meant I mentioned about obviously the plot's probably a bit it's a bit meandering would be mm. one way to put it, um, and I suppose. Does do any of the characters actually change? That's now that's more of a question than a criticism. I'm not. I'm asking that as a sort of a. Is you know this kind of had that almost Seinfeld feeling for me of you know no one learns a lesson you know even though things happen yeah. and it might affect their behaviour in the future no one what's, learns a lesson. What's really interesting about that is that that's the sort of. That is a good question to ask of a film because that's what film theory tells us is supposed to happen. But that's yeah. what gets me. Every new Paul Thomas Anderson film I watch, there's another rule that he breaks and I go, well, it didn't for me affect the, the enjoyment of the film. So maybe yeah. the idea that a character has to develop and grow is bullshit. Or maybe they do. I mean, <laughs> I definitely think Freddie changes at some, you know, to some extent. Dakota, what, what do you think? You know, I, you know, I... I read a quote recently where it was it was a funny retelling of a story by Stephen King where uh, he was given the chance to direct one of his own books Maximum Overdrive and he was talking about how he was on set one day and he was shooting from one angle and he's like okay and let's just you know uh, switch the camera completely around to the other side and everyone around the set 
grew deathly quiet because they didn't want to tell the director, Stephen King, uh, the famous horror author, that he was breaking the 180 degree rule. <laughs> and, and so he, he was like, okay, why is everyone being so quiet? No one would tell him. So finally, the, his director of photography pulled him aside and explained him what happened. And then he called up uh, David Lynch. He's like, what, what am I doing here? And so David Lynch explained it to him. He's like, so... I can't break this rule. And David Lynch is like, oh no, you can break the rule if you want. Here's a bunch of films that do do it. You just have to know what you're doing to break the rule. Exactly. What, sorry, what's sort of the, the same way. 80 degree rule? I'm not aware of this actually. So basically, um, <laughs> if, if, you know, I'm filming the two of you having a conversation yeah. uh, and, and I have the angle on the left side, I have the camera on the left side of your face. And yeah. then when I switch over to Sam, it's going to be on the right side of his face. So that way your eye lines match up. But suddenly when I cut back to you, I'm on your right side. Suddenly you look like you're talking in the opposite direction. Right. I see. So it's, it's like a, a framing sort of. Yes. So, so you basically have a 180 degree line. Yes. So you have a 180 degree line. You can place that line wherever you want. You just cannot cross it once you've established your first shot. But you can do that if you want to. You just have to be aware that you're doing it. Usually, when it happens, it will throw off a viewer like, "Oh, what's going on here? I don't really understand what's happening." Uh, And they don't register why it's weird. They just know something weird has happened. Mm. But then directors will use it to establish a reason behind it. Same thing as maybe something like a Dutch angle where a camera is tilted, and you're like, "Why? Why did they include this shot? This shot means something." And so, sort of looping this all back in this long (laughs) rant of PTA meandering and not really having plot, and you know, do the characters actually change or not? It doesn't matter because if he's breaking the rule, he's choosing to break the rule and there's a reason behind it. Whether or not we understand it or not, he chose to do it. That's a really good way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah, because you can see in just really badly made films, you go, well, that that was bad and it didn't work. In a film like, I don't know, let's say The Shining, where you have to create unease in somebody, they will break those rules to create that unease, won't they? And it has to be fit for purpose. But like, I mean, the the subreddit of um, like writing is either people saying, can I do this in my writing? Or people saying, by the way, you can break any rule you like as long as you know what the mm-hmm. rule is. <laughs> and why you're And that's it. the thing with filmmaking. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. there's tons of rules that you need to follow, but throw them all out if you know that you're breaking them. You can't yeah. just disregard that there are rules. You just have to know that you are breaking them. You have to know that you're going to create an effect for the reader or the, the viewer. And yes. you have to know what you're going to do with that. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. That's well, we've all learned something there, I feel. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be Googling it now, going films that have broke the 180 degree rule. <laughs> and yeah, and now. once you once you notice it the first time, you will notice it every single time oh, it happens. Oh dear, yeah. I, I, I like it's like when you, you hear the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Everything yeah. has it in as soon as you hear it. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Um, you were saying. Um, about Dutch angles as well. That just reminds me of two things. It reminds me of the 1960s Batman TV show when they were like, let's show the villain's lair. And it was like a Dutch angle. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, they always do them as like glamour shots in Formula One. They'll always do a horrible Dutch yeah, angle true. of a car and, and Thor out of the garage. And Thor 2 as well. That's all I think about when I hear Dutch angle got, Thor 2. Does it got Dutch angles in Thor 2? It's basically one big Dutch angle, that film. <laughs> you see, where's the... Can you name a scene? It's got it in. Just Wait, which one is... Is, is Thor 2, does it have... Or is it Thor? Which one has the guy... It's just a... And Thor doesn't have his powers and it's the big metal... No, that's Thor thing. 1. So Thor 1 and Thor 2, certainly... I mean, Thor 1 maybe then more has a lot of Dutch angles. That has so many in that scene. It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, I'm sure we, if we you get into such a big discussion can... about Dutch angles, and there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it still sounds right like then. a pornographic convention to me. I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll never get that over. Right, so but yeah, um, but we'll I was going to say just you. yeah, that's yeah, that was it really. Uh, I just wanted to, to see what your both opinions about maybe the characters not learning or growing or anything like that. I mean, I do think I don't think Freddy's personality changes, but I think he he definitely the character definitely has an arc. You know what mm. I mean? I think he it was more the f- or something. Yeah, <laughs> learning. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the fact that he's sort of he's kind of released from sort of his promise to Doris, and he, he sort of can get he gets away from you know the cult. I think they're both good things. I think it's the fact. I think the only reason I ask it, I think it's simply because the the last shot of the film is him hugging his um, sand boob lady. <laughs> so it's just it's that a bit of a would, coda. <laughs> yeah, right it would suggest that. Yeah, yeah, it does suggest that he's he's back to the same position he was, you know, eighteen months dog. ago or whatever. The horny dog who finally has sex, at least. Yeah, yeah. Not with the sand lady. I mean, the, the real yeah. lady. Although now I know a great way to make sex awkward. Start asking those um, <laughs> those thingy questions. What they call processing <laughs> questions. Yeah, that'll be interesting well, next time. <laughs> Do it the first now, time. Now, I almost think the best way to describe it is Freddy is the same person he was at the beginning of the movie at the end. The difference being he now knows who he is. Ooh, that's a really interesting. Good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's time for lines and scenes. Uh, we'll start with Dakota as our guest. What would you say would be your favorite scene from this film? Honestly, I think... Uh, if if the two of you don't agree on this, you know, I think we're just going to have to end it. There's basically two options here. There's the the first processing scene between uh, Lancaster and Freddy, or there's the prison scene. If you two don't select one of those ones, you're both out of your mind. But uh, I, I think it's a pretty easy one. It's, it's the first processing scene, which has probably, you know, by far the, the single best acting that almost I've ever seen. Like, I, I don't think I, I, you know, I mentioned it at the top of the show. I don't think I could pick another scene that, that really has as much fantastic acting in this. These are two people who are so deep in their characters. I don't see Joaquin Phoenix. I don't see Philip Seymour Hoffman. These are two so rounded completely. If that, if that was a short film, just that scene, <laughs> you would know exactly who they are and, and everything that they stand for, believe in, want, hope, desire, everything about it. There's It's just it's just perfect. Should we move on to favorite lines then, Hugh? Or... <laughs> Is that correct? Um, I'll, I'll, no, I'll let you echo my sentiments. So... Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's hard it's hard not to say that that's not the best scene. I think as soon as I was watching it, I literally put in my notes it was my favorite scene. <laughs> I, I was I was almost like oh, I was almost watching it I was going I was a little disappointed because I think I checked to see how far into the film I was at that point. I think it was about 45 50 minutes in and I was like, oh, I've still got another like hour and a half of this film and that's the best scene. I'm it's gonna... already peaked. Yeah, I was kind of what's going to keep my interest <laughs> after that. Um it wasn't a favourite scene, but it was an interesting scene. The the weird, like, dream kind of fantasy he has when uh, Lancaster's oh, seen that. And all the women are just randomly naked. Yeah, that was... That's always your favourite scene when the woman is well, naked. Well, it was unexpected is more was what I was trying to get at. Mm. And, you know, fair play to all the lasses getting the 
you know, <laughs> getting naked in that, you know, that was must have been a, that must have been awkward on set for them all, wasn't it? Good, you know, yeah, it's not flattering lighting, you know, you know it's they're not, no. it's not designed to make them look great. No. Although I did notice how they kind of subtly like just didn't, Amy Adams didn't show shit, did she? They had a satin touch away, you know, and I didn't see Laura Dern there either. It was like, yeah. It was more like we found some local exhibitionists, and they'll they'll uh, they'll they'll suffice. On the Amy Adams character, it's fascinating that she looks, she sees him in that moment. It's almost like she knows. It's a really weirdly because she's so perceptive and so. You know know what it reminded me of? Do you remember the bit, Dakota? You might not have seen this. Do you remember the bit in um, Peep Show where? Oh, what's he called? Not uh, Mark ah, Jez, Superhands. Jez, yeah, Jez, Jez is um, he's in he's waiting for um, he's waiting for the a show to start, and he's looking out into the audience at the women. He's like, "You've got a vagina, you've got a vagina. You're trying to hide one, but you've got a vagina." <laughs> it kind of reminded me of that. Where has Peep like, Show just... made it to Canada? Dakota, do you know about Peep Show? I'm I'm aware of it vaguely because I know British people never shut up about it on the internet, <laughs> but uh, I, I've never seen it. Well, please yeah. watch this. Me and Sam did a pub. <laughs> me and Sam and his brother did a pub quiz for it a couple of years ago, and basically, me and Sam had to like binge watch all six series or something of Peep Show in about two weeks. There's nine and, series um, though. Yeah, we we came fourth, I think, didn't we, or fifth? We did quite well. We did well because yeah, we were we playing okay. against like teams of like seven. And Joe, yes. bless him, our number one listener, didn't didn't put the effort in. I thought no, no. So it was just me and Sam, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the guy who was doing the questions was like, "You guys need to get a life." And we were like, "Yeah, we're away. <laughs> We've got one. It's called Peep Show." Um, yeah. yeah, but you, no, you're right. That is a fascinating. What's your favourite scene then, Sam? Uh, it's the it's the processing scene, and it and it and it always will be. And um, I, I just the little. The little bits where you just... I think you start to trust Lancaster because you think that... You figure out, well, he must have a plan behind all this because he knows these questions by heart and he decides, you know, things like, you know, keep your eyes open the whole time. Have either of you seen uh, Louis Theroux's My Scientology movie? Yes, I have. No, but I I am aware of it. And it is worth watching because they they do get into things like the auditing and how that works. Funnily enough, his off-Broadway episode has a similar thing with the actors when they're they're training and they kind of just look at each other and talk to each other. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who's interested in psychology, maybe, uh, but probably all humans would be interested in it. It's the idea of, like, breaking down breaking people down I suppose isn't it and, and, and figuring out who they are but it's, it's a processing scene it, of course it is by a mile um, the, favorite lines then as a, Sorry, as, a, as a former acting student of uh, course, watching this of movie uh, literally everything that, that the, the cause does is definitely ripped directly out of like acting school <laughs> is the purpose obviously there take to you break... to an extreme <laughs> is the purpose there to break you down and get you to really understand who is it basically therapy because you've got to understand who you are to pick that apart yeah, a little bit, and just really to go, you know, below surface level, which is, you know, a, a big part of what they're doing in the cause is, you know, you can you can say what's on your mind, but that what's really 
inside of you is, is what's counts. So, you know, the, the touching the wall and touching the window sort of thing. I've definitely done exercises like that in acting class. Oh. Never, it would not go on for hours, but it's like, okay, great. You said the first thing, you know, uh, the wood is, is cold and smooth and the window is, is warm and, and slippery and stuff like that. But then what, what's the next thing that you feel? What's yeah. the next thing that you think? And when you repeat it several times, you slowly start or able to kind of get deeper and deeper in. And, and same as the That's processing thing where Wait, I've definitely done that. Are you in a cult? Face to face. You know, maybe. I, I, I did give them a lot of my money. <laughs> and all I got was a diploma. He's a film caster. It is a cult. Yeah, he's a film podcaster. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, that's interesting, that, that sort of depth of it. And it kind of reminds me of Stanley Kubrick's approach to directing, which is, well, we'll do 150 takes because yeah. by then they're not reading the lines and thinking about their decisions. They are they are not even acting anymore. You know, it's really broken them down. And they forgot who they are. Yeah, they forgot who they are. <laughs> they are now... Uh, Jack Torrance, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Let's say lines then, uh, Dakota. Which lines stood out for you? You know, I'm I'm pretty partial to uh, "fuck pig." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's just so but jarring. Bring it back to the screams that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, th- this is tough because this is this is this is not like a, a super quotable movie. But like, I'm sure if I were to write down stuff or, or read up quotes, a lot of it's very deep and very interesting. But uh, I, I did like towards the end when Freddie's in the movie theater and um, and Lancaster calls him and is like, "I need you to come over to England," and he says, "My spaceship's in the shop." <laughs> <laughs> Can we just point out in that scene when he's uh, at the end where he's talking to Lancaster, how big's that window? <laughs> that is an unnecessarily big yeah. window, isn't it? That is, yeah. uh, that is like real something fuck out you of, money that he's got for it, that. It's a bit like Atlas Shrugged or something, isn't it? You know, that kind of <laughs> sort of framing. And, in, in that yeah, same scene as well, or the, in the phone call scene when he says, you know, I figured yeah. out where we met, that's a really nice really nice line for it. But yeah, you're right to go to it. I mean, it's not... But there are so many. there are so many kind of memorable lines I think and like you say if you look up the, the quotes you kind of go oh yeah there's that and there's that and there's that the fuck pig apparently mm-hmm. was um, pig fuck I mean not fuck pig uh, pig fuck, pig fuck yes. uh, was uh, if, for IMDB fans was uh, some of the um, <laughs> PSH made up on on set when Paul Thomas Anderson plucked out one of his hairs <laughs> and he said right use it uh, which I thought was great nice uh, nice research Sam. oh yes checked yeah. all the IMDB trivia uh, Hugh favourite line um, well, obviously, the exchange in the processing scene has a lot of good lines, but I'm not yeah. going to sit here and quote that whole scene because it took too long. But the one that I did like, and the bit where you're like, oh, this guy's clearly a shyster, is um, when he first meets Lancaster Dodd, and he's like, I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, and a theoretical <laughs> philosopher, but above all, I'm a man, a hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. He's, sort of almost <laughs> re- he's rehearsed that line a thousand yeah. times, and... You and know, immediately Freddie it quotes out. it, puts it on subreddit, I am very smart, and everyone laps at it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah, it's There's that funny line. bit when they print the book and it's got like, it says like, is it, it's got like all the letters after his name and it's like, yeah. it's like MOC or something, PhD, MD, and you're like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, he's, a, he's a shyster a shyster my favourite line yourself? was um, I really respect one word jokes or two word jokes I really respect jokes that you know like in uh, the Simpsons Bart Simpson you know what's the what's the sound of one hand clapping and he starts clapping with one hand <laughs> the, the joke in this that was zero words was why did that make me laugh so much <laughs> the joke in this that was zero oh, words was are you unpredictable 
and then Freddy farts. And I thought that's not such a line <laughs> as a great joke. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's. We a, forget that laughter so, is important. So your, so your favorite line wasn't actually a word; it was a sound. It was a. It was, it was a, a fart. more of a more of a puff of gas. Yeah. Yeah. So join us next week on Sam scatologically likes this. <laughs> <Or what laughs> listens to this. Please smell uh, this. I, I think we need to process this. Uh, <laughs> Sam, were you loved as a child? <laughs> Have you ever slept with a member of your family? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, great lines, great scenes. Uh, favorite shot. Favorite shot. That, uh, that's incredibly tough because basically you know, every every shot of this is, is a beautiful painting. Every frame of painting. Uh, yeah. Every frame of painting. Yeah. Um, it it simultaneously, you know, has this like uh, a real sepia tone look to it, but also very warm and comforting in just about everything. You know, multiple times throughout the film, there's shots of water as a boat is going, and you just yeah. sort of see, you know, uh, the, the wake that is left behind. That. And every time they do that, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, there's the iconic shot of, you know, Freddy hanging off the, the bow of the ship and just sort of like mm. his limbs hanging downwards <laughs> and it's, you know, a beautiful upward shot, uh, aerial shot. That's, that's great. But I think my favorite is I just love close-ups of faces. And so there's the one scene where Freddy and uh, Amy Adams' character, I really should look up her name Peggy. since I keep saying it. Peggy. Peggy, yes, thank you. Where the two of them are are basically doing a, a mini processing scene, and she's asking him what color are her eyes. Yeah, those extreme close ups of both of their faces is, is just so so stunning, and just shows the power of photography. Absolutely, mm. and you are looking at the color of her, her eyes, and it is changing, and you're wondering, am I changing it? Is it is it an effect? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is really wonderful, Hugh. Uh, yeah, he's, my favorite shot is Amy Adams's black eyes when it changes because yeah. it's the most like affecting shot because you don't I mean I didn't notice if it changed from like blue to green but when it goes black you definitely notice her eyes go black <laughs> and I think they do some more trick sort of cinematography later on in the film with her as well where they cast shadows over her eyes so her eyes look black as well which I think is quite cool whether that was That's intentional cool. or not I imagine it was when she Definitely. sat at the end in the final scene when she sat on the chair her eyes look really black go back and look. I, see, I didn't mm. even clock that and that might be something that unconsciously made an effect on her character there you go yeah, Sam you know, media I'm studies for you lad media studies Jesus Christ 15 years ago he did a fucking A level in media studies <laughs> he thinks he's fucking Scorsese uh, yeah yeah for me, I really like the waves forming behind the boat what was really interesting is somebody posted that screenshot in a, a Facebook group and I immediately recognised it as the master, even though I hadn't seen this film for six or seven years or something like that. And I don't know why it was, but it was because that that shot must be in so many films, you know, waves behind a boat. You must have seen that in so many things. I think either that or, and it's a joint uh, one here. Either one of them on the motorbike. I can't decide. Which oh one yeah, I like that, that was a, that was a runner up for me as well. Yeah. Yep. The bit on the motorbike when they're actually coming towards you on the bike and in the car, yeah. it's like a real strange, almost like trick shot because because it's a lead, obviously could be in a camera, you can't really distinguish like depth of field. So you, so I thought it was like a, there was a stationary image and then all of a sudden the car and bike turn up and it was like, oh, that's weird. 
three. The start of Fargo all again, just uh, approaching. Oh yeah. Or you know, like uh, <laughs> Holy Grail, if you prefer that sort of reference. Yeah. Uh, let's let's take a little break then. When we come back from the break, we're going to get some critics' ratings. We're going to get Hugh and Dakota's numbers out of ten, and we are going to have a little quiz, maybe a bit of social media as well. Why not? Join us after the break. Hello and welcome back. It is time for some critical response. Hugh, how do you think the critics responded? I imagine they liked it. It's um, it's good film. It's good performances, isn't it? You know, it's hard to hard not to say it's a bad. It's hard to say it's a bad film, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's definitely a film that critics would give great re- re- scores to, and then the audience maybe less. Who knows? So, well, I know. Uh, Metacritic uh, gave it eighty six percent total in the in the critical response, which I thought was yeah. Positive, but not universally beloved. What do you think Roger Ebert would give it, Hugh? Well, I think this kind of falls into the Venn diagram of our two favourite critics were probably writing about films at the same time. So I'm interested to see what Roger Ebert... Did you do Mark Kermode this week at all? I didn't actually, know. No. Oh, sadly. Sad, sad. But uh, um, what did, I don't know. What did Ebert think of his other films? I imagine he liked it. You know, Big Rog, he likes a well-made film. He likes actors, darling. Maybe Cisco preferred <laughs> it, I don't know. Go on, tell me. Tell me, tell me, tell me. What did Roger Ebert think? So Roger Ebert gave this... Oh, sorry, here's Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. <laughs> I was going to... Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Our best friend, Rog, gave this only 2.5 out of 4 Ooh, stars. Dear. Whoa. Which was really Glad he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really interesting is I found it hard to disagree with anything in the review, even though my review, my score would be higher. Um, he says, The master is fabulously well acted and crafted, but when I reach for it, my hand closes on air. It has rich material and it isn't clear what it thinks about it. It has two performances of Oscar calibre, but do they connect? Its title character is transparently inspired by L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, but it sidesteps any firm vision of the cult religion itself or what it grew into. Paul Thomas Anderson is one of our great directors. The master shows invention and curiosity. It's often spellbinding, but what does it intend to communicate? Dakota, what do you think there? I... I think that's a, a very positive review. You know, the idea of reaching your hand out, grasping, closing your hand, and, and nothing is there. I think that's a perfect definition of this film. And I think that's a, you know, that's praise. I also remember when this movie came out, a lot of the discussion leading up to it was, ooh, PTA is making a Scientology movie. He's going to expose them as, <laughs> as the hacks and frauds that they are. And a lot of people were were initially disappointed uh, that it wasn't really, you know, the... Expose the, yeah, the expose that they, they were expecting it to be, the, the the damnation that he was going to rain down upon them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think this is maybe the sort of movie where you can't really pump out a review, you know, the night that you watch it. Maybe this is something that you need to sit with a little bit. And so, you know, Roger is a fantastic writer, and I agree with what he says. I think, I think you could give that review to another writer and that would be a five-star review. <laughs> I think that's a good take on it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and you're right, it's only the most skilled critics could watch this and immediately 
give a, a score they'd be happy with five years later. Uh, I'll tell you a score I'm mm-hmm. not happy with five years later or ten years later. Um, Rex Reed in The Observer hated this film, uh, gave it 25%. Um, I copied huge swathes of this, so I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but I would urge anybody, if you want to kind of feel again, uh, to, to read this awful review. Uh, he says, I never cease to be amazed by the pile of unmitigated crap that gets shoveled off onto the movie-going public by pretentious critics. They're at it again with the master, a load of film festival tripe that was booed in Venice and greeted with massive walks out in Toronto, but is now being defended in an organised rescue mission that hopes to develop a minor cult following in New York. Um, I'm going to skip a bunch of st- stuff he does say since it doesn't make one bit of sense and probably isn't supposed to there's not much to say about it except why <laughs> and I thought that sounds like somebody who doesn't enjoy films who's writing the Jesus um, he says there's a lot of excess acting going on here but none of it comes to anything since no character is properly oh. developed the cast is left to create stick figures out of some kind of neurotic haze Um, call the master whatever you want but lobotomised catatonia from what I call the new hacks can never take the place of well made narrative films about real people that tell profound stories for a broader and more sophisticated audience fads come and go but as Walter (laughs) Kerr used to say I'll yell tripe whenever tripe is served Um, he puts in yeah so he puts Paul Thomas Anderson in this uh, what does he call them the um Oh, the, the egomaniacal writer-director is a member of the new group of anarchists that includes Wes Anderson, Spike Jones, David O'Russell, freaky Todd Salons, and the dismally, dismally overrated no-talent Charlie Kaufman, who wins critical praise for writing incoherent movies about why he can't write coherent movies. <laughs> this guy. Wow, those directors have basically nothing in common with each other. You cannot put Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson in the same room and be like, other than the fact that you have the same yeah, last yeah. name, nothing about you is similar. Like that scene in the Matrix where both of them go, Mr. Anderson. That's what I imagine it'd be like. Um, well, look, these are some of the I films, say... by the way, that he, these are some of the films he, he puts in as trash. I Love Huckabees, Brewster McCloud, Punch Drunk Love, Mulholland Drive. Royal Tenenbaums, Lost Highway, Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. What? <laughs> I've not seen this guy is finding book. connections I would never see. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen the Code of the Matrix, Sam. <laughs> One thing I would say, I would like to see Paul Thomas Anderson do a film that has a bit more narrative structure to it. That, you know, that you know, as a, as a challenge to him, I'd love to see him do a yep. film that has a beginning, middle and end. <laughs> How he That's chooses fair. to, you know, arrange that would be up to him and that would be the beauty of it. But I think I can understand that kind of sort of point of view, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I sort of, I would call Paul Thomas Anderson... Uh, if Terrence Malick had maybe like 15% more narrative <laughs> structure to his films. Yeah, Hugh, I, I assume, have you seen many Terrence Malick films? Hugh? Oh yeah, I've seen The Thin Red Line. I've never, I've not seen, what's the one that he did about eight, about the same time as this with Brad Pitt in? Tree of Life. Yeah, Tree I've of Life. seen Tree of Life. I don't, what else has he done? He did Bad, was it called Badlands? Not bad, Badlands, uh, Days of Heaven were his, his early ones and then he took like a 35 year break before coming back with Thin Red Line uh, Tree of Life uh, The New World which is my favourite which is his version of Pocahontas oh yeah New World I forgot that was a Terrence Malick film I've not seen that I've seen bits of it actually no I think I have seen it 
Because they're all dying, aren't they, at Jamestown, basically, or whatever it was called. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but yeah, um... he's certainly even less narratively structured. And, yeah. and I guess that's the sort of thing where you can find out who the, for want of a better word, film plebs are, if they just hate those <laughs> films. Because you, you can dislike a film or not probably get it, but if you go, ugh, what's that all about? Then you're probably a bit of a pleb. You know, like, that... you're allowed to not like them. That review there that, yeah. that the guy gave in The Observer sounds like a review somebody would give to like a Lars von Trier film. Because they're very much <laughs> a bit like that at times. I mean, I couldn't sit through Magnolia. I got bored. Not Magnolia. Melancholia. I got bored. Turned it off. It was pretentious shit when they're all doing the dancing around the, the lawn <laughs> in like stop motion. Just fucking stupid. That's the first scene, isn't it? Isn't that very early on? Pre- yeah, it's really. That was when I was like, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> it was very early on in the film, I'm not going to lie. Um, but I know I sat through the thin red line. I like I liked that film, actually. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen many Terrence Malick's. I did like Tree of Life, but I think if I was in the wrong mood or tired, I would have hated it. Um, you know, so it's a... It's have you a, seen The Thin Red Line? Risky one. No. Oh, no, I think I we'll haven't. have to watch that at some point. That's a good one. one. List. Uh, let's get yeah. a bit of social media. So I put it out there just saying, is this A, PTA's best work, B, PSH's best work, C, both, or D, neither? Uh, we've got some quite interesting responses. Um Adam. Why, why are you bothering me at work? Leave me alone. Who is this? So, uh, was kind of <laughs> it was very much a door-to-door survey, and I don't know why. <laughs> uh, Adam, it's spelt like friend, but with a V instead of an F, so I'll say Vrend. Uh, it said, great Ooh, performances friend. and characters, but as per usual, the story peters out in a really unsatisfying way. Um, just like in Phantom Threads, to my memory, There Will Be Blood is the only one of his where this doesn't happen. Um, a lot of people said this is either yes it is their best work or it's in contention uh, Hugh Kenner said that uh, it's PTS worse uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's best is Moneyball and Phoenix's best is Joker Adams's best is Man of Steel sorry who's, who's, who's how can money, Moneyball who's this <laughs> Who's... I love Moneyball, don't get me wrong, but Philip Seymour Hoffman's in that movie for like less than 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. He's oh, yeah, not... he is in that film, isn't he? He's <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's the manager. That's not who I think of when I think of Moneyball. <laughs> I forgot he was even in it. So Hugh, no. your namesake, uh, disagrees with you. Um, yeah. Sri... Amy Adams' best work, I don't know, probably. Coming Arrival think... is her best work, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be my yeah. pick. Yeah, because she's the star of that film, isn't she? So. Yeah, exactly. she's she's wonderful. Yeah. Everything. She gets uh, a Sri Kanna Kankanali. <laughs> Sorry, Sri. Uh, I didn't like it very much. To paraphrase Ebert, it's a beautifully crafted movie that's impossible to connect with. Uh, there will be blood and Phantom Thread are far better, and honestly, so is Joker. It's not. <laughs> it's not, is it? But always, you know, we appreciate the the opinion. So yeah, that's just a few of the of the uh, really interesting. Um, social media stuff now the most important ratings are here in this room slash skype call um dakota how many pig fucks out of 10 would you give this film oh definitely 10 yeah. uh I, I i called this you know my, my favorite film of the decade at the beginning of the episode and, and that still stands uh this is also my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film followed closely by Phantom Thread, but uh, but this is this is one of the all time greats. It would be a disappointing sort of searing indictment on the twenty tens if this was not a ten out of ten. If it's your favorite of the decade, <laughs> it would be the decade's disappointing. Yeah, it's about an eight. The decade sucks. <laughs> Six point five. Uh, Hugh, if I was to guess, I'd say you're probably going to say a seven or an eight, maybe an eight. How many pig folks? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with eight. 
because it is good but I don't think it's not my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film I think it's better yeah, than Phantom that's, Thread that's though Dakota uh, oh. I think I, I, I didn't mind that film but I just there was something missing that this film had that that film didn't have but it's still not as good as Boogie Nights for me I still think since that's I haven't seen film. Phantom Thread I smell a future episode Dakota if you're game we'll get you back on uh, yeah. post haste um, now yeah, yeah I agree I'm, I'm sort of a 9.510 for this it's a, it's a really brilliant film if you'd have asked me uh, before I rewatched it yesterday I'd have been definitely a 10 now I'm kind of like yeah basically a it 10 just, for me it just misses maybe one scene there's like a, I feel like there's a scene missing from this film I don't know I how agree. to describe it or maybe there's like I, I, do you know what I do like about this film is there's it it pretty much focuses solely on um, on Joaquin Phoenix's character Freddy. There's no like there's no fl- even though it's quite a long film. There's no there's no fluff in it if that makes sense. There's no like unnecessary B plot. You know everything is kind of relevant. Do you know that kind of a way? There's no yeah. there's no like like there could have been a whole thing with his like his daughter or his son but they kind of they there's little hints at it but they don't really delve into it something i did want to ask you both actually and i forgot to ask earlier was how come the the daughter comes onto him and then like makes out that it's all him like i know why she might make out it's all him when she wants to get rid of him because she doesn't like him but was she doing that to manipulate him and then to be like, I think he's in love with me and all this crap later? Or was she just being a slag? <laughs> Lack of a better word. Sorry. Is she just being... That like, is interesting. Is she being like naughty, if that makes sense? Because it's, you know, it's frowned upon and her husband sat right there. What do you guys think? Dakota, Sorry, I should have mentioned thoughts. this ages ago. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> like no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, well, feel free to answer it. I mean, you know, I, dead air's fun air. <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think it's tough. It's interesting because I do think it's the the aspect of of being naughty that sort of intrigues her. But then I think his rejection of her, which he he views as would be an affront to uh, Lancaster to you know make a move on his daughter or sleep with her or whatever, yeah. uh, would be a, a no no in, in Freddie's eyes. Yeah. And I think. I think that sort of um, that sort of a turn off for her, and then as they later realize that he's maybe a little more volatile, she's willing to kind of throw him under the bus. Right. And also, I, I have to wonder if if the Rami Malek character is just so sort of such an emasculated character yeah, through, through several of the scenes that he's in. Uh, I wonder if 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 her hitting on Freddie is sort of seen as a rebuke to the uh, the emasculation of her own husband. Yeah. That's enough, a good no, just, and I think it's, No, it's a fair point. I think maybe a more conventional filmmaker would have had her go off in a huff rather than actually yeah. still quite seductively it, putting her hand just, on his shoulder. It's just interesting because, like, obviously he's clearly somebody who's, like, a bit obsessed with sex, but yet as soon as he's potentially offered it from somebody who's you know, avail- who's making herself available to, you know, came on to him, he's like, no. And then a, it just feels like dog. it's the, Yeah, it feels like there's a there was a, like a vein there that could have been mined, I think, that kind of went fell by the wayside. Hugh Hugh always wants more sex in films, that's what I've noticed. It's an interesting. Yeah, one. I mean it made Bambi a lot more exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs> he wanted he wanted a deathbed 
banging at the end of uh, Me and Ellen Dying Girl. Didn't want a anyway, deathbed bang. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want him to like mounting her if she's dying. That's definitely the sense just, I got. I just think there was a potential for them to have an actual real romance in that film, and that's why that film is not as good as you think it's sex on screen because that's all he wants for a film. Yeah, um, oh, it's time for a quiz. Teenagers talk like actual teenagers. That's the that's the weekly jingle. For a quiz. Um, <laughs> as is always the case, Hugh, I'll ask you the question first. Dakota is our master expert. Uh, you can answer if oh, uh, Hugh gets it wrong. Question one, Hugh, how old is Doris when Freddie leaves her? 16. Question two, Hugh, how old is she when he goes back and speaks to her mum? 23. Wow, Hugh's always really interested in girls' ages. It's really weird. Uh, question three. What? <laughs> That's what she says. She said she's 16. And mum's like, oh yeah, she's 23. It's you're very confident there. Um, What word does Lancaster use? Question three. What word does Lancaster use in his second book that worries uh, Helen Sullivan, Laura Dern's character, so much? Imagine. Guys, he's on it. He's on it, Dakota. You're not getting a a sniff. I got that one right. Mm. Yeah. God, he was so interested in words in books. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird though isn't it? question four what does Lancaster claim his system can cure controversially oh uh, leukemia or some types of leukemia some forms of leukemia yeah question yeah. five how many times did Freddie sleep with his aunt three times god and you're so name? interested in incest <laughs> and Which her I'm name not. is I am not <laughs> what's her name Bertha Aunt Bertha good god Sorry about this, Dakota. Well, Dakota, I'll ask you this question. Please. Question six. How do, how do you get rid of crabs? <laughs> you you shave one of your testicles, oh, yeah. uh, and then all the crabs move over to the other testicle, and then you light the hair on fire, and then they all jump off because they're burned. Yeah. So that's five points, like a, Dakota. That's a doesn't draw. Doesn't seem like a good idea. No, yeah. I wouldn't. Don't recommend this. Uh, do, do not try this at home, kids. No. <laughs> So I, I, have, I have a couple questions. This Ooh. isn't a quiz, but more so at the Oscars, uh, we had Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams all nominated and all lost. Who would you prefer to win the Oscar? Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln or Joaquin Phoenix? Few thoughts. Ooh. Or do you want to know the other nominees as well? Got any other nominees? The other ones were Denzel Washington for Flight, Bradley Cooper for Silver Linings Playbook, and Hugh Jackman for Les Miserables. God, they were all nine years ago. Time's a bastard, isn't it? Or eight years ago. Uh, For me, for me, Paul Tom. uh, Sorry, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. For me, Joaquin Phoenix. This is for the lead. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Lincoln. I mean, I. Oh, interesting. And I would say that the performance of Daniel Day Lewis in that film is good. You know, you really. He's very immersive in the performance as Lincoln. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd probably still go with Daniel Day-Lewis on this one, where I think Joaquin Phoenix has kind of cut a niche for himself as playing these kind of unhinged, wacky characters, and has been recognised thusly. Do you know what I mean? Well, not not really much before this though. Uh, he got Oscar nominated for um, for in Gladiator for. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, the character he plays in that was an unhinged. But he's not like he's well. not he's not Freddy Quello, is he? He's a man who wants to fuck his own sister. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, what's that guy called? Okay, what's that character so- called in that film. I should know this. 
the Emperor yeah. Maximus. No, what's... Oh, it's going to bug me now. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that was that was Russell Crowe's yeah. Um Max, So yeah, so the supporting name, actors, Maximus Decimus Meridius, <laughs> leader of the yes. Felix Regents of the North. <laughs> you know. For fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> I used to know that off by heart. <laughs> so the supporting actor, uh, the winner was Christoph Waltz for Commodus. Django Unchained, but <laughs> Commodus, yes. But the other nominees were Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln, Alan Arkin for Argo, and Robert De Niro for Silver Linings <laughs> oh, Playbook. Fuck yourself. Yeah, no, uh, he definitely should have won the Oscar for. Uh, best he he should have won that. The, I think it's. Uh, I do. Re- what was the first one you said? Who won it again? Oh, Christoph Waltz. I do yeah, love he's that. Okay in that. You know, I, I, he's I good. think that is really good, but it's not Philip Seymour Hoffman in, uh, oh, in this. It's you know. nowhere near, is it? It's uh, he yeah. obviously Christoph Waltz. Is that, was that his second Oscar? Because did he win it for um, Inglourious Bastards? He did, yes. Yeah, he's wow. much, I mean, he's basically playing that character again, but nice, <laughs> if that makes sense. He's like cheating, <laughs> being, <laughs> cheating. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, it's like a mirror image where he's the nice, the nice murderer. <laughs> I mean, I like him in that film. I think that's a really good film as well. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman should have won the Oscar here. I don't know why he didn't, to be honest. A bit of a yeah, it, it was it was a travesty. I mean, if sure. this film had come out the year the film Green Book had come out, I think it would have won the best picture. Oscar, quite frankly, <laughs> what won best picture? It, it was a shame that it was even nominated for best picture. Was it not? What won like... best picture that year? No, nope. Argo. Oh yeah, that was the Argo year, wasn't it? Good Argo film, was okay, but... but I think this yeah. is, I still think this is better. I think about Argo maybe once every three years. <laughs> I don't think it's a film. <laughs> no one talks about that film anymore. No. Yeah, I, I like it, but yeah, this is obviously superior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is weird, isn't it? I think it just, I think honestly, I think it gets punished for his lack of narrative structure or the lack of narrative. Almost certainly. What it seems like. Anyway, Sam, that was, uh, that was, the, that was master. the master. That was the master. Um, Hugh, what are we going to watch next week? So next week, uh, so we said one of our favourite scenes in this film was, uh, you know, a dreamlike sequence of naked women. So next week we're going to do <laughs> a film that's got potentially lots of dreamlike sequences in Vanilla Sky, the, I think, Ooh. 2002 film. Speaking of Scientology. Yeah, speaking of Scientology. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, Sam, what do you, other than, obviously, Tom Cruise, what do you know about Vanilla Sky? Base, basically nothing. Like you say, kind of dream, dreamlike. Uh, Tom Cruise is in it. I think Penelope is in it as well. I think you said it's based on a Spanish language yeah. film. Yeah, Open your eyes yeah. or something like that. Yeah, in, I remember in, from the trailer or the poster, the kind of getting you know he's on the top, he's on the roof of a building, and then he nearly falls and something. I genuinely have no idea what this film is about. Dakota, are you yeah. a fan of Vanilla Sky? I have never seen it, so this is going to be the first time in quite a while where I'll actually be able to listen to your episode knowing nothing oh, about fantastic. it. Fantastic! Fantastic! Yeah, get ready for lots of spoilers. I, I mean, personally, I'm interested. I've not watched <laughs> it for a number of years, so I'm kind of interested to see if it. If it, I suppose, holds up really <laughs> is this is the way I would put it because we'll I really out. enjoyed it as a teenager and a, like eighteen, nineteen year old. But um, I don't know if it's you know I'm just looking here on IMDb and it's got not got the best rating on IMDb. It's got six point nine, which is never very good. But we'll see, won't we? We'll see. 
Well, that's what we'll see. Yes, we will. Sam. We will see you next week. So all that remains to be said is a massive thank you to Dakota for his 17th appearance on the show. <laughs> record. <laughs> and Take that, Joe. <laughs> and all that also remains to be said is please listen to uh, Contra Zoom Pod. It is fantastic value. And the best of, uh, best of 2020 episode fairly yes. recently out is well worth a listen. Um, so yeah, thank you again, Dakota. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank on. you. It was my honor, guys. Excellent cool stuff. stuff. And Sam, Hugh, if they want to get in touch and tell us how great Dakota is and tell us how we've changed their lives by putting them onto ContraZoom Pod, how could they tell us those things? Uh, so, what they need to do is they need to start their own ContraZoom podcast. <laughs> uh, they need to then uh, somehow get in touch with us so we can make a podcast with them and then they can tell us what they think there. That, that's usually Fantastic. the best way. Yeah, via Reddit, usually if I put a post yeah. out asking for hosts, uh, for yeah. guests, then easy. I, I don't see any problem with that, Hugh. No, I think is it's a solid, sound foundation, isn't it? <laughs> is, there a, is there a more efficient way they could do it using an internet? I mean, connection? they could email us at pleasewatchthis.pod okay. at gmail.com, but I mean, that's boring. Who that? yeah, Literally, who would do, who that. Would do that other than Dakota, yeah. which we if, still appreciate? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Only to send hate mail. <laughs> if they wanted to get like Sam, yeah, we have other ways of getting in touch with us. Yeah, how could so, they do that? You know how like the mainstream media has this conspiracy and it's trying to drag down our beloved president and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> if you don't want the mainstream media, go for social media is what I would suggest. Right, you know, social yeah. media, where again, our great president has been silenced. Um, <laughs> we're at Please Watch Pod on Twitter right. and Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, you know pray for Donald and, and get rid of him on Twitter. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, I think... <laughs> I think that's uh, that's all we that's, have to say that's about how this week. to leave. It is, isn't it? And um, scarf around. Yeah, I, and this week I'm going to play us out to uh, Master of Puppets by Metallica. Because you know, <laughs> that's a great song to have about a film about the master. Because it says master a lot in it. So yeah, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> Enjoy some Metallica, folks. Thanks again, yeah. Dakota, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, to Dakota, thanks for coming on our masturbate about the master. You are a cunning linguist. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, see you next week. Bye. Bye.